There are a lot of things going on in the scriptures tonight. I want to get some of them out of the way so we, we have a, a, a solid background. The first reading from Genesis, if you've, who has traveled in the Middle East? That's anywhere from North Africa, throughout Saudi Arabia, anywhere? No one? No one's traveled? Okay, one, and two, and three, okay. Okay, um, bartering is not unusual when you're shopping in the markets of uh, the Holy Land, even, uh, the markets of Kasbah in, in uh, Tangiers or any place. Bargaining is not unusual. And what's bargaining? Well, you go in and there's no prices on anything and you want to buy, a, say, a pair of shoes. You say, how much are those shoes? The first thing the attendant at the store will say, or the shop will say, is how much you want to pay? Well, you know, like, I had to learn that because I used to say, I don't want to pay anything, you know? If I want them free, you know, you got them free? No, no, you got to give me a price. Okay, and then it goes back and forth. And you offer five, they say no 10, you offer seven, they say no 12, and it goes back and bartering. Common Middle Eastern Semitic communication around the area of shopping. Well, Abraham was in the Middle East. Abraham is, is in the Holy Land eventually, but before he gets there, he's traveling with his tribe. Abraham was a, a shepherd and he had flocks and kids and everything with him and little battles here and there. And he had just had a skirmish with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and he had to rush out of there. That's why it's mentioned here. And he takes compassion on, on the people who are, be, who are suffering and he says, now, first of all, again, he's talking to God. Now, God doesn't appear like this in front of him. So how do we talk to God? I don't know. Was it, a, was it an angel? Was it a, an apparition? Uh, it shows the familiarity that Abraham had with God. That's the more important message here. The familiarity. You can talk to God about anything. And the people who put these scriptures together carried on oral traditions through centuries. So eventually, when they talked about this, I could just see the little kid saying to his grandpa who's reading this or reciting it, because oral tradition was the method. Did Abraham really talk to God? Yes, he talked to God. Of course he talked to God. And he had a good bargaining relationship with God, especially when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so God is going to punish everybody, all the sinners, in a, in a certain area. And he says, God says to himself, I must go down there and see with my own eyes if their actions correspond to the cry against them. See, that's the message. God is listening to the cries of the poor. God is listening to the cries of those who hurt when are suffering. That's the message. How the author flavors it in his own particular style is, cre is creative. And it's also a Semitic culture. And that's the style they would use. So now God is talking to Abraham. Abraham says to God, God, do me a favor. Don't, don't kill those people. Don't punish all those for a few people because there's some good people in, in that crowd. And God says, eh, you find me 40 good people and I, I, will, I won't kill anybody. 
I mean, again, God's not going to zap us. That's Old Testament theology. God zaps us, you know, from the, the bolts on, on sky. That, that's, that's mythology from the Romans and the Greeks. That's not our God. But it, it's what they knew, how, how to convey the message. So he says to God, okay, if I find 40 good people, will you spare the people? Okay, go look. And then Abraham realizes, I can't even find 40 good ones. He goes back to God, bargaining. God, tell me, please, if I get 30 good people, would you spare everybody? I can just say Jesus, or God, saying, okay. Find 30 good people. And this is like me in the bargaining place, in the Kasbah, in any Middle Eastern culture. And you did too, if you go there shopping. He couldn't find 30. And it goes down to 20. And it goes down to finally, God says, okay, you find me 10 good people and I won't destroy them. And that's the conclusion. Now, many messages here. 10 becomes a minion. And a minion is the minimal number of people that can pray in a synagogue. So God is establishing this, a rule, you might say. If you get 10 people, you can pray, and I'll listen to you. Was that the rule of God? It was the rule of people who tried to understand God and how to get us to understand God better. So the number 10 stays, it's a minion, and that becomes the salvific point for this story. Okay, so God is, is chiseled down to 10 people. Okay. Paul's letters to the Colossians, very optimistic, reminding us that when Christ died, a piece of us died with him the old world. Now, not us here, but the people of, of the Colossae, the people of, of Jesus' time. And the part that died with you is basically your reliance on the old law. The old law that we just heard from Abraham. Things are changing. So the author of Colossians is saying, things, things are changing. It's almost as if when God, Jesus Christ, came to earth, he bargained with the world, and he wrote up in legal terms, and, and, and if you knew the, the original Aramaic and Greek that Paul used, there are legal terms in here that we don't, we don't refer to. He wrote a writ. He wrote an IOU with his life, he's saying. It, here it says, obliterating, obliterating the bond against us with its legal claims. Okay, if you heard the original language and say, what is he talking about? So people who are being saved by Jesus are having their IOUs eradicated. We owe God. Up to this point, we relied on the Old Testament to bring us a connection with God. That's over. With Jesus, that's over. God is revealed in a new person, Jesus Christ. And the greatest law, forget the 673 laws of the Jews, forget that. The greatest law is love one another as you love yourself and God as you love yourself. So when Jesus goes to the cross and you owe him a lot, the author of Colossians is saying, Jesus took that writ 
the IOU, and in poetic terms, again, he nailed it to the cross. So with his blood, he wrote the new contract between God and people. And the new contract was salvation in the name of Jesus. Now this is all the background, the theology that I think we have to at least appreciate in order for us to really get into the gospel. I hope you're not in a rush tonight because you got the gospel now. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be in a timely fashion. Jesus is walking along with his buddies and they say, hey Jesus, John is that leap between the Old and New Testament, John the Baptist. He taught his disciples how to pray. Now, the only way we know how to pray is the way the Old Testament teaches us to pray. So could you teach us to pray in a new way? See how the Old Testament is our foundation, it's a reliance that we have on, on the people of, of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. So the apostles are saying to Jesus, can you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? And then he gives us the very famous, this is Luke now, what you know and what we say every, every Mass is the Lord's Prayer from Matthew. This is a variation of it. There's two variations. And the first thing he says is, praise God. When you, when you talk to God, praise him first. Hallowed be your name. Praise God. Thank him for what he is and who he is and how he's touched you. And then place your petitions before him. Now, there are many ways you could read this, and, and I am sure if you go online, there are many, many preachers today who are preaching the Lord's Prayer as the greatest prayer, and it is, bar none. And how Jesus exemplifies that, that when you pray to your Father in heaven, it's, it's Daddy, it's Abba, it's your Daddy, the person upon whose lap you want to sit and be cuddled. That's how you speak to God, the Father as your daddy, not as this way off figure up in the mountains. That's why Jesus came in flesh, in blood, just like us. So we can understand what God is all about. And Jesus goes one step further and he says, for instance, if your kids want an egg, you're not, okay, now the reason he says it this way, you're not going to go into a basket and give him a snake. Now the reason he says that is because eggs and, 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 and vegetables and certain fish were kept in baskets in the dark in, ho in the homes. So when Jesus says, if your kid is asking for, asking for a, something to eat, like a fish, you wouldn't go in the basket and hand him a snake. You'd look through the basket and make sure there were no snakes in there. And then you'd hand the kid a fish. If the kid is looking for a piece of bread, you look in the basket or where the bread is stowed and you make sure there's no scorpion there because you're not going to hand your kid a scorpion when he wants bread. So God, Jesus is trying to say, you see how God the Father loves you? He takes care of you better than your own father can take care of you, better than your mother can take care of you. This is Jesus getting into it, the heart, the heart of it. But even as I prepared the readings, I realized there was something missing today. We all know the Lord's Prayer. We could recite it by heart. We all know the terminology. 
We know we, know we have to together, forgive others as God forgives us. We, we, we got it all down. But when I was preparing this, I thought, you know, I'm a counselor, I'm a psychotherapist, and I want to reach into my skills as a therapist and see if I can get the point across, as God got it to us, about what prayer is. That's the key here, prayer, dialoguing with God, whether it was Abraham, Paul, and here Jesus talking to his people, trying to get us to be one with God. And this is not meant to be sarcastic, and it's not meant to be uh, disgraceful, but when I deal with my clients who have addictions, you ever see somebody with it? Don't raise your hand. You ever see somebody with an addiction? Do you know anybody with an addiction? Whether it's alcohol, drugs, money, doesn't matter. The list can go on. There's always excuses. Okay, and some of those excuses can be transformed into positive ideas tonight. Some of the excuses. Oh, I only drink when I'm happy. Jocos. I drink when I'm happy. Jocos. Or, oh, I'm depressed. I'm crying. I'm lacrimose. I'm sad. So I've got to drink to pick me up. So I drink when I'm depressed. Or else, I want to get into a battle. And I used to see this in the college all the time. Thursday night, beer muscles. This fraternity would beat up on this fraternity because they're all hepped up on alcohol. So some would act out of bellicose behavior, fighting, belligerent. So they drink in order to get stronger in their heads, I guess. They drink so they have no inhibition. So they drink to the point where they're bellicose. Then you have the talker, the people who have everything to say about nothing. And you know those. Some of those who drink, or uh, I'm using drink, but it could be any ad addiction, any addict. Could be drugs of heroin, cocaine, any, any of them. Some people will drink or use and become unconscious, comatose. They can't get enough of it. They drink, they drink, they drink, and they're out cold. Each of those terminologies, I'm gonna repeat them, jocose, comedian, the happy person, lacrimose, the sad person, morose, the depressed person, verbose, the ongoing talker, bellicose, the fighter, comatose, the unconscious one. Each of those terminologies can be used for prayer. For any of us, we don't have to be an addict or addicted to anything. If we turn to God when we're happy, jocose, we turn to our Father in Heaven and say, listen God, I'm so happy I just did this, I just accomplished this, I just I was engaged to my girlfriend, my boyfriend. Lacrimos. Visiting someone in the hospital and crying with them, giving them sympathy. Lacrimos, placing your tears 
before God, who is the Father who comforts us. Moros just lost a job. The economy's out of whack. Prices of food. I'm so angry and morose and the whole world is for nothing. Even hints sometimes of suicide we hear. Good time to go to God because he's there listening to us. Don't forget, he's the father who will feed us. He's the father who will protect us and take care of us. Go to God when we're morose. Go to God when we're sad. Not the government, not the person next door. Go to God. He fills our hearts. He fills our heads with hope. When you hate the person next door, and God forbid it's your wife or your husband or your child, and you want to fight, you want to get them, perfect place to go is God. When you want to fight and are so angry, you can't see straight. God is there. He knows. Don't forget, his son was spit upon. His son was nailed to the cross out of anger. And he forgave. We can't always be as strong as God. We should be nice if we were. We can't be as strong as God and automatically forgive in battle. How can you forgive the bloodshed in Ukraine? How can we forgive the bloodshed in our own city, whether it's accidental or group or gang violence? People fight, but we need to go to God for peace, to bring God's power God's influence into our own lives so we don't absorb that anger, that bellicose behavior. Go to God when things look like the end. When we really might be comatose, family and friends at their deathbed, or in the funeral home when death has already inflicted a member of our family and friends. That's the time to go to God again. He's the comforter. He knows us. He's bearing our pain. He sent his son so we could appreciate that God knows our psychology, that God knows how we think, because God is Jesus, his son. He walked on this earth so that you and I could really latch on to him and realize He's latching on to us. Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his friends to pray. Pray when you're happy, when you're crying, when you're sad, when you're nervous and verbose, when you want to go to war, when you're almost dead. Pray, and the Lord of life raises us up.